This last panel is really a, uh, a debate uh, that will be preceded by presentation, but eventually we want to um, create a bit of a debate between two very distinguished scholars and, uh, and journalists, and I'm really very honored um, to be introducing them both. I will start by introducing Ron Bailey, and then after Ron's uh, presentation, I will turn to uh, Robert Samuelson. Ron Bailey is uh, the award-winning uh, science correspondent for Reason Magazine and uh, Reason.com, where he writes a weekly science and technology column. Bailey is the author of Liberation Biology, the Moral and Scientific Case for Biotech Revolution, Prof uh, EcoScam, uh, The False Prophets of Ecological Apocalypse. He has edited several books, including Global Warming and Other Ecomyths, uh, How the Environmental Movement Uses False Science to Scare Us to Death, Earth Report 2000, Revisiting the True State of the Planet and the True State of Planet, which preceded it by five years. Um, between uh, 1987 and uh, 1990, Bailey was the staff writer for Forbes magazine covering economics, scientific, and business topics. His articles and reviews have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and many other publications. He has lectured at Harvard University, Yale University, Morehouse University, and the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, as well as Rutgers, University of Virginia, and other places. He's a member of the Society of Environmental Journalists and the American Society for Bioethics and Humanities. Ron, welcome. I'm delighted to be here, and first, a hearty congratulations on the launch of Human Progress. It's a wonderful website, and I will be mining it quite a bit for future articles. Um, yes, that is up. Good. Uh, so the title of my talk is The End of Doom, and the reason I'm taking that title is I'm working on a book that will be published, uh, we hope, at the end of next year by St. Martin's Press that was initiated with the Cato Institute uh, by that title. It's a working title. You never know if they'll let me keep it or not. But the idea was to sort of update my uh, book, EcoScam, uh, from 20 years ago, in which I was looking at the, the, the prophecies of, of coming apocalypse, and I noticed that 20 years later, we were still here and thought we might want to update that to see how it's still looking for us. But to begin with, th this is, uh, of course, the four ho horsemen of the apocalypse, which are sometimes known as pestilence, famine, war, and death. As it turns out, the good news is, as you'll be able to amply prove by going to human progress, is that all four of them are receding in some ways or other. Uh, pestilence is way down. Uh, fewer people are dying of infectious diseases thanks to vaccinations, uh, public sanitation, antibiotics, and that kind of thing. Uh, with regard to famine, as we've seen already, the amount of calories per capita has been increasing quite considerably over the last 50 years or so. That, too, is receding. Uh, with regard to war, again, demonstrated by Steven Pinker and many other researchers is the level of violence. Your chances of, being, of dying in a violent conflict uh, or from domestic violence is lower now than any other time in human history, most likely. And even death has retreated somewhat. In 1950, the average human life expectancy was 47 years, and it is almost 70 years today. So basically, those four horsemen are in retreat, thanks to human progress. So what I'm going to talk about, notionally, is the four horsemen of abundance. I couldn't come up with a good other phrase, but I'm going to call them, notionally, peak population, peak farmland, peak pollution, and then peak nothing. 
Let's start out with peak population. Let's go back to the halcyon days of the 1960s, when we all remember this fellow. Well, many of you weren't born, but anyway, this is Paul Ehrlich. He wrote a very famous book uh, called The Population Bomb in 1968. And you must always refer to the 1968 uh, volume, particularly if you're quoting this, because in his 1971 volume, he had already updated this to the 1970s and 1980s, famine will occur. Uh, but he said basically hundreds of millions are going to starve to death in spite of any crash programs embarked upon now. Basically, humanity had, had overrun that Malthus's uh, uh, predictions of, of imminent famine due to, to population growth were going to come true. Well, this is Paul Ehrlich just earlier this year and the proceedings of the Royal Academy of Sciences, where once again, you know, uh, 50 years later almost, he's saying the same thing. And I should point out that part where he says that there's a socioeconomic political arrangement that he dislikes. What he really means by that, and you can read it in the article, is that he really hates free market capitalism. It's really destroying the planet. Uh, I will give a little anecdote that when I was first writing for Forbes magazine years ago, I, I was doing a series of articles that became EcoScan with Forbes, and I called up Ehrlich, and we had a nice long conversation. And I pointed out that his predictions in uh, the population bomb had not come true. And he, he assured me, Ron, I got my timing wrong. It will happen after the year 2000. Well, still. So what did happen? Why have, what has happened to fertility? Why, why is population going the way it is? Well, basically what we find is that total fertility rates have been going down since the 1960s. And, and around 19, in the 1950s, the average woman on planet Earth had about, or uh, actually more than five children over the course of her lifetime. That's called total fertility rates that has now fallen to 2.4 children per woman and continues to fall around the world. And this kind of indicates that. Now, why, why did they start falling? Well, well, I'm sorry, let's go first to the next thing. So what, what, are the what are the trends likely to be given the falling fertility rate trends? Well, what we have here is data from the latest uh, uh, report for the population revision in 2012 from the United Nations. And what you find is, is that the, the, the top one is constant fertility, the uh, red one is the high rate, and the low one is uh, the green one, and uh, the median is the one that basically most people think is their prediction. Whether or not that's true or not, we'll see. But in any case, if the median projection is correct, by the end of this century, world population will be a little over 10 billion. In other words, we will not see a doubling of human population again, most likely. Now, there are good reasons to think that the lower trend is likely to occur, and I can explain a little bit about that. But if the lower trend occurs, what will happen is world population will peak somewhere uh, 8 to 9 billion in the middle of this century and then decline back to as low as 6 billion people by the end of the century. So why is that going on? Well, part of it is, and I'm, I'm going to be stealing data from the website for these future presentations, but part of it is, is that what you find is the total fertility rate goes down as people get wealthier. Richer people have fewer children. And there are lots of other correlations that go with that. Um, another fascinating correlation is with, economic, is with economic freedom and the number of children. Um, Seth Norton in 2002 did a wonderful study where he correlated uh, economic freedom index with the number of, with total fertility rates. And what he found was that for high levels of of uh, low levels of economic freedom, the average woman would have over four children over the course of her life, and at high levels of economic freedom, they would have uh, 1.8 children over the course of their life. 
he correlated with the rule of law index as well. And what he found was, again, it was over four uh, during the course of her life. It was if there was a low uh, a rule of law uh, number, and it was and it was below 1.5 if you had the strong rule of law. And also, all kinds of things correlate with this. It's wealth, education of women, those kinds of things. So that is part of the reason why fewer children are being born, why the, the total fertility rate is likely to decline. Another fascinating one that I, that uh, data that goes with this is a wonderful series of studies done by some anthropologists at the University of Connecticut and at Michi and University of Michigan, where what they discovered is, is that if a woman can expect to live over 70 years old, again, correlating with wealth, education, all kinds of other things, they have fewer than two children over the course of their lives. Whereas if women can't expect to live longer than 50, they have uh, five to six children over the course of their lives. They're making reproductive bets, in other words, with regard to the uncertainty of their environments. And these correlate constantly. Wherever you see low uh, life expectancy for women, you will find high uh, total fertility rates. The good news is, is that the United Nations expects that these uh, trends and longevity should increase fairly markedly, which I think will press down on the total fertility rate over time, fairly rapidly. How rapidly? I basically agree with Sanjeev Sanyal, who is an analyst at Deutsche Bank, who in September basically made this statement. In our view, global, global fertility will fall to the replacement rate in less than 15 years. In less than 15 years. World population will peak at 8.7 billion and decline to 8 billion. I think it'll be faster than that. Now, who was this man? Who was Norman Borlaug? Well, I hope most people in this room know who he is, but uh, Norman Borlaug uh, is the, known as the father of the Green Revolution, and he won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1970 for that achievement. And I'll, I, th I think I can flat out say that he is the single human being who saved the most human lives of any person in all of human history. Basically, he did this by uh, uh, plant breeding and, and enabling the, the rapid production of, of, of food uh, for a burgeoning population. So the result of that is we are and probably have achieved uh, peak farmland. Peak farmland is basically the idea that we will need no more farmland than we have now to raise food for a population of, say, 10 billion, should it happen to be that way at the, toward the end of this century. This guy is Jesse Ausubel. He's the director of the uh, Human Environment Program at Rockefeller University in New York. And this is from a study that was published in Population and Development Review. And I, basically, he's suggesting that what will happen is that farmland will be abandoned and that forests uh, will return to these abandoned farmlands over the area. And if we can get, he's even more optimistic, if we can get rid of biofuels, we will have even more land uh, returning to nature, probably the amount over the, over the course of the next century, probably the amount equal to the entire eastern United States. And why is that happening? Because of what Norman Borlaug and subsequent researchers in plant breeding were able to do. Basically, what you found is that uh, agricultural production has tripled while world population doubled. There's lots more food for more people over that period of time. And the result, and this is what happens, is, is that they call it the great decoupling. This is from Ausubel and his colleagues, is that if we were trying to, what you found is, is that uh, the blue area shows that the amount of farmland we're using has not really shifted at all much in, in the last 50 years or so as we're raising food. 
if we had had to produce food at the same relative level of productivity as we did in 1960, we would have had what Osborne calls skinhead earth. If crop yields had remained stuck at 1960 levels, the world would have needed about 3 billion more hectares to feed the current population, about the sum of the USA, Canada, or China, or almost twice the size of South America. That would have been terrible for the planet. Um, as a result of peak farmland, one of the things that was mentioned uh, by, by Mary in his presentation is that the world is reforesting in many areas. And this is from a report from the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences in November. And what you find is, is that uh, the, then the assessment of forests around the globe is that in the countries where the gross domestic product, when people have gotten wealthy enough for $4,600, what you find is there's a negative uh, rate of growing stock exchange, which is mean both the density of the forest is increasing as well as expanding in those countries. And this is an example of what we can call uh, the environmental Kuznets curve. And this is uh, it's supported by a lot of data, and, and so it's somewhat controversial, but it, it seems to be uh, supported by a lot of studies. Where what happens is that as poor people start to get rich, they care less about the, the world around them in certain ways. They're much more interested and focused on using resources to enable their families to have better lives, to get educated, to make sure that they don't die. And so what you have is income goes up, pollution gets worse, for example. But at a certain point, as in this deforestation trend or reforestation trend, when levels get a certain, of income gets to a certain turning point, in the case of reforestation, $4,600 per capita, environmental improvement begins again. In other words, people are able to afford uh, the measures ne necessary to reduce pollution in, in the air and rivers and, and so forth. And so you get environmental improvement, uh, which leads us to peak pollution. And this is an example of how that works in the United States. And this is data from the EPA. It's a nice chart. We'll uh, try to uh, decompose it a little bit for you. But basically what you find is, is the economy in the United States uh, since 1970 doubled in size. The vehicle miles, our cars traveled and our trucks traveled 163% more. Our population increased by 50%. Uh, energy consumption by 50% and uh, carbon dioxide emissions by 44%. But the bottom line is the interesting one. Basically what you have here is that air pollutants, the six that are regulated by the EPA, declined aggregately by 60%. This is what wealth enables. This is an example of how the environmental Kuznets curve works. Of course, the kind of pollution that people seem to be very concerned about today is carbon pollution and the cause of global warming. And I, I want to say that I, I do, uh, I personally accept, and my reasonable, uh, I, try, I think is reasonable, ana uh, analysis is that on, on the balance that the latest uh, report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change is that uh, the balance of the warming over the last 60 years or so, about half of that could be attributed to human contributions to the atmosphere, at least, uh, carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases. Now, that increase over that period was about 0.7 to 0.8 degrees and, uh, over the last six years or so. And as you can see here, these are, this is a chart that is comparing the satellite data and surface temperature data records since 1979. We started in 1979 because that's when the satellite data began. And what you find is that there has been this increase. And if you look again at the satellite data, they find that since 1979, the per decade increase 
of, uh, of warming has been about 0.14 per decade. Uh, but as I say, the IPCC just issued a latest report. And one of the things that we're worried about, or those or they're worried about, uh, global climate change, are model projections that the world is going to perhaps achieve or uh, have catastrophic warming in the future. And so what they wanted to do in this particular chart was compare 73 models that they rely upon with the observations. And what you will see here is this little, this is the model projections out to the future, and this is where they say the, uh, the uh, temperature, the observations are. Well, um, that's actually an anomaly. That's not a, a comparison of the actual results. This one is from John Christie, who is one of the researchers at the um, University of Alabama at Huntsville, who's been doing the satellite data since 1979. And what he did was take the average of all 73 of the models being used by the APCC, plotted them up against the data from uh, both the satellite data series and the weather balloons to see how they compared since 1979, a 35-year period. And what he finds, and this is for the tropical uh, mid-troposphere, and you want to look there because that's where the global warming signal would be strongest. Uh, and that's it's, it's a, a huge proportion of the atmosphere, and that would be where you would see it. And what he finds is if you look here, these are the satellite and weather balloon data. Uh, none of the models uh, uh, find that, uh, show that, that comparison. Basically, all of the models are running hotter than uh, the, the actual temperatures have been over the last 35 years. And to make it starker, he does this. He just takes out the averages and compares them. Strictly speaking, the balloon, the satellite, and the model average, and you can see quite starkly how they diverge. Now, one of the things that seems to be going on, there's a controversy over a member called uh, climate sensitivity. Climate sensitivity notionally speaking, is the amount of warming you would expect with a, a doubling of carbon dioxide or other greenhouse gas equivalents over that period of time. And recent research, the last three or four years or so, has been basically showing that the earlier estimates that the IPCC had were probably too high, and it's been drifting downward over time. Uh, a recent study uh, published in Nature Climate Change in August, for example, uh, compared uh, 37 of the climate models from the mid-1990s to currently uh, and their projections of what would have happened with temperature over that period of time with uh, the actual observations. And what they discovered was is that over the 20-year period, essentially, the models are running twice as hot as the observations. And if you look at just the last 15 years where global temperatures have not increased significantly at all, in fact, they've been basically flat, the models run four times hotter than the actual observations. So assuming that this number remains, that the climate sensitivity continues to be lower over time, that would suggest a number of things, two of which is that whatever warming we are going to be facing, we now have a longer time to address it, uh, either through mitigation or adaptation, and or that the, uh, the catastrophe will be much later, uh, the catastrophe, in other words, will be much later than many people were worried about. Now, this is. You've heard of peak you know, everything. I'm suggesting is peak nothing going on. And very briefly, I'll give you some indication of that. I think the right question is asked by these two economists from the, the European Union, Brett Schrager and Smolders, in an article called Sustainability and Substitution of Exhaustible Natural Resources. Uh, is it realistic to predict 
that knowledge accumulation is so powerful as to outweigh the physical limits of physical capital services and the limited substitution possibilities for natural resources. Translation, are people smart enough to get around uh, any uh, uh, shortages that might occur? And I think the answer, and the answer they suggest in their article is yes. Um, remember peak oil? I don't see those headlines anymore. They seem to have gone away for some reason. Well, going down memory lane, CNN in 2007 had this story where they reported that the German-based Energy Watch Group released a report Tuesday saying the world's oil production peaked in 2006 and will now, uh, from now on, will drop by 3% a year. It says that it's by as early as 2030, the global availability of oil will be half of what it was at its peak. And so they have a nice chart doing that. And by the way, their slogan is, for the Energy Watch group is uh, because energy policy needs an objective voice. So fast forward five years later, this is Leonardo Mulgari at the Harvard Belfort Center, where, uh, as I understand, Bob Zellick now has a position. And this is from a report that he did for the Belfort Center, where he said global uh, oil output capacity is likely to grow from 93 million barrels per day to 110 million barrels per day by 2020, the largest increase since the 1980s oil production has not peaked. But the whole notion that we're running out of exhaustible non-renewable resources got a real big boost from the limits to growth. A lot of the, a lot of the, 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 the concerns that we have were generated in the, the, the intellectual climate of the 1960s and 70s. And the Limits to Growth uh, was a book published in 1972 and uh, sold millions of copies around the world. And in the center of that book is a nice little uh, chart where they basically uh, do for you, explain to you how, how many years of any particular known reserves of resources are still available at current consumption rates. Uh, and, they, and this is what they, they, they give you is, you know, copper 36 and uh, the lowest, I guess, was silver 16 years, but we would be out of natural gas and oil essentially by the year 2000. Uh, now that was at current consumption rates. Now, to be fair to them, they also did um, a notional idea as well, maybe some other resources will be discovered. So let's just arbitrarily increase all of the known reserves by five times. And then we will look at what would happen if they were consumed at the exponential growth rates we expect to occur. Now, I don't show you those numbers, but basically, I have run them elsewhere. But basically, we would be now running out of those resources just about now. Uh, but what do we find instead? The U.S. Geological Survey uh, does estimates for all of these resources, easy to find. Uh, and these are the known reserves we have currently uh, of these resources at current consumption rates, which are significantly higher than we were consuming them back in 1972. And this fellow with the devil's horn is one of my favorite people, um, uh, Julian Simon, who uh, was a distinguished scholar here at the Cato Institute wrote the ultimate resource and so forth. And the reason I have him there is to, to remind me to tell you of a great story about a bet on, where people bet against human ingenuity. And that again goes back to Paul Ehrlich. And many of you will probably know this story, but it's worth contemplating. In 1980, the, the Ehrlich and, and Simon put a bet on a, a basket of 10 different minerals. And the minerals were chosen by Ehrlich, by the way. The idea was that uh, the prices would be $1,000 and in inflation-adjusted dollars, if the prices went up, which Ehrlich expected them to do, then Simon would have to pay the difference between uh, the $1,000 and however much they'd gone up. 
And if they had gone down, then uh, Ehrlich would pay Simon the amount that went down. In 1990, Ehrlich sent a check, no note, no nothing, for $576 and some cents. In other words, the value of the minerals had gone down by more than 50% over that period. A cautionary note, had Simon done the bet between 2000 and 2010, he would likely have lost that bet. Um, there are, and there's other data on this, there are uh, economists who look at what they call super cycles in the development of resources, and we seem to be at the peak of a new super cycle and maybe ready to slide down. The idea is that as uh, prices go up for various resources, then it calls forth ingenuity, uh, capital, and so forth to start exploiting them and finding ways again to uh, produce them more cheaply. And uh, I believe that we may be at that point, and I would be willing to take a similar bet now on those same five minerals if anyone wants to do that for the next 10 years. Um, in any case, the upshot is Doomsday has been postponed again, and I say, I say postponed for the foreseeable future, which is uh, the next 100 years or so. Anyway, thank you very much. I look forward to talking with you later. Thanks, Ron. And I should uh, also mention that the website does include data for uh, many uh, commodity prices, including uh, the, 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 the super index uh, from The Economist, which goes back, I think, 150 years, right. and which shows over that period of time that the overall index uh, has actually declined, um, or rather the price has declined. Um, our second um, speaker today, I'm honored to introduce to you, is uh, Robert Samuelson, who is a weekly columnist for the Washington Post. Uh, he's writing on political, economic, and social issues. He joined the Post uh, uh, on the business desk in, 1970, uh, in 1969. In 1976, he became an economic reporter for National Journal, where he began a weekly column. Uh, that uh, started appearing in the Post in 1977. In uh, 1984, Samuelson became a columnist for Newsweek. His awards uh, include the National Headliner Award for Consistently Outstanding Column on One Subject in 1995, 93, 92, and 87. Uh, a 1993 John Hancock Award for Best Business and Financial Column. The Gerald Loeb Award for the Best Commentary in 93, 86, and 83, a Clarion Award for the Best Magazine Editorial Opinion, uh, and uh, the 1981 National Magazine Award. He's the author of Untruth, Why the Conventional Wisdom is Almost Always Wrong, a collection of his columns and uh, The Good Life and Its Discontents, um, uh, the American Dream in the Age of Entitlement uh, appeared in 1995. With that, help me welcome Robert Samuelson. Thank you, uh, Marianne. Uh, you left out one of my books, um, The Great Inflation and Its Aftermath, and anybody who's written a book thinks everybody should buy his or her book, so I want to get in that little plug and uh, just show you how obsessed we are with it. Writing books is one of the more irrational things that people do. And I can't understand why anybody writes a book, but I, having done it twice, um, I would do it again. 
but my wife has said, no more books. Uh, so first, I want to congratulate Marion uh, on the website, uh, which seems to be a, just a, a font of information. And um, getting a website up and running is no small feat, as apparently the Obama people have discovered in the last couple of weeks. And so I think maybe they should put you in charge of healthcare.gov, and maybe things would get off, off the ground. Uh, my appointed role here today is to serve as something as the loyal opposition to play devil's advocate and to remind us that progress is often a double-edged sword, that it brings drawbacks as well as benefits, and sometimes the cost may exceed the benefits. As the comic poet Ogden Nash once said, this is, used to be my favorite quote, although I've now replaced it, progress was once all right, but it's gone on for too long. <laughs> My wife sums this up as by saying, I have never seen a glass that is half full. Um, that's actually not true. I'm broadly sympathetic to the project here today, and I've spent much of my career uh, debunking uh, faddish notions, often pessimistic, um, and I have tried to sort of put things in, into perspective by looking at uh, some of the overlooked good news. And indeed... Um, uh, my first book, The Good Life and Its Discontents, uh, The American Dream and the Age of Entitlement, was essentially a rebuttal to the then prevailing uh, conventional wisdom that uh, America uh, was, uh, had, had failed in the post-war era. And the argument I made in that book is that, indeed, uh, we had made enormous economic and social progress uh, in, in the post-war era. This book came out in 1995, exactly 50 years after the end of World War II. But that our disappointment reflected the fact that we had created, at the same time, utopian expectations. And compared to the utopian expectations that were widespread, indeed, American society looked like a failure. But compared to the past and compared to any sort of common sense um, it seems to me, standards, we had made enormous progress in the previous 50 years, and we should, we should uh, acknowledge that. Uh, and that was, so I am broadly sympathetic um, to what Marianne is doing with this website to provide information. The, the, the lead of, my, of that book was um, the paradox of our time, and remember this is 1995, is that Americans are feeling bad about doing, doing well. Um, the basic theme I have and the advice I have is that progress.org ought to take that lesson into account, that you ought to beware of a selective vision, that you only see what you're looking for, and that progress is breaking out all over and that it's ignored by most commentators in the media. This is likely to be true, but it's also true that history is full of ambiguities, uncertainties, and contradictions. And I think that the website ought to reflect that both in its commentary and in uh, the, the data sets that it chooses to follow. Now, let me be a little bit more explicit about what I mean. Let's start with globalization. The explosion of international trade and finance, technology and know-how transfer over the past half century. 
There is no doubt, I think, that this has done an enormous amount of good. First, uh, initially, and this is now forgotten, in the reconstruction of, of Europe and Japan after World War II, which at the time seemed a miracle, and in the more recent decades, in the lifting of hundreds and hundreds of millions of people out of abject poverty and creating new expanding middle classes in countries like South Korea, Indonesia, Brazil, China, India, and many others. None of this, in my view, would have been possible if those countries had remained economically isolated, and indeed, countries that are isolated and cut off from the global economic system have generally fared very poorly, North Korea and Cuba being two prime examples. But this does not mean, in my view, that globalization is an unalloyed good. Let me put aside the familiar complaint that globalization, like any spurt of economic growth, is disruptive and that it assaults and alters traditional society. This is true, but it is also well known. More relevant, I think, is the possibility that the global economy is inherently unstable. There are two problems, I think. One is that, the economic, that economic integration has run well ahead of political integration. A successful economy, in my view, requires a corresponding political foundation. In the early decades after World War II, what we call the world economy had such a foundation because it consisted of countries that were bound together by military and diplomatic alliances and, equally important, had shared democratic values. That is, the world economy, as it existed then, consisted mainly of the United States, Western Europe, Japan, and assorted other democratic allies. These countries were willing to support each other and had a, a political framework to write rules and to resolve conflicts among them. By choice, much of the world decided to stay out of this system. The Soviet Union, China, uh, India, and a number of other smaller socialistic countries or countries that were just so backward that they couldn't join or wouldn't join stayed out of the system. Now we have a, a world economy that is much more complicated in political and social terms. We have countries that are de highly dependent on each other economically that are political rivals or adversaries. China, some of the major oil producers, Russia, Iran, Venezuela are glaring examples of this. This raises the quite obvious possibility that at some point a political dispute will lead to an economic breakdown. We have already seen that on occasion, not a total breakdown, but the tensions between politics and economics in uh, oil embargoes and sharp run-ups in oil prices. Uh, to date, the institutions and the self-interest, the economic self-interest at least, of the countries that are involved have kept us from uh, uh, anything approaching a total breakdown, but I don't think it is unrealistic to consider that a possibility. The second problem, I think, is that we simply don't understand the global economy very well. And, and, and in particular, we don't understand the implications of vast flows of money across borders. There is, it seems to me, the real possibility that these flows at some point may lead to a financial crisis whose international nature will make it very difficult to control. In the recent financial crisis, international cooperation was actually pretty good. But that doesn't mean that, some, that, that the same will be true in the next crisis. 
if there is a next crisis, and I think there probably will be one at some point, our view of globalization may correspondingly shift and shift for the worse if the crisis involves a breakdown in trade and, and, and sizable uh, and stubborn increases in unemployment in, in developed countries that make the pre present unsatisfactory economy look like child's play. Let me now give you another example, technology. By and large, technological advances represent progress. They raise living standards, give people more choices, and in many cases, spare them from suffering and pain. But again, and during the presentations this morning, we've really gone over, the, just skimmed the surface of the evidence of this, um, but even skimming the surface, the case is pretty compelling, it seems to me. <clears throat> but again, there are many technologies that are not unalloyed goods. If we could, for example, would we repeal the invention of atomic bombs and nuclear power? I think we would. In the 1950s, it was widely thought that nuclear energy would provide almost limitless cheap electricity. In the event nuclear power is expensive, and every 20 or 30 years, it seems to spawn a major catastrophe, a Chernobyl or a Fukushima. But the real problem, of course, is that the same technology poses the danger of thermonuclear war that might kill countless millions or, in a worst-case scenario, actually might wipe out much of humanity. Again, would we give up nuclear power's modest benefits if we could, we could erase the threat of an atomic holocaust? I think we would. On a more modest scale, similar qualifications apply to other technologies. The Internet is a technological marvel of the age. And I have to just say, in the, in, the, in, in the interest of full disclosure, I am not a great personal fan of the Internet. I do use a personal computer. I would be happy if we went back to typewriters. I've got four or five of them at home. Um, and uh, I used to have a comparative advantage in seeking out information because I knew the people in the government who had it, and I knew some of the data sets. Now my comparative advantage is completely wiped out because all you have to do is Google it and it will pop up on your screen in about two microseconds. So I'm not crazy about the, uh, the Internet. So I, that may, to some extent, influence my view of it. But it seems to me that it, the very uh, widespread nature, uh, nature and openness of the Internet poses dangers that might offset or at some point actually completely overwhelm many of its benefits and fascinations. What I'm talking about, of course, is the hazard posed by cyber warfare and widespread hacking. Today, these seem to me to represent manageable problems, problems that are not so widespread or so costly that they, that they neutralize the Internet's large gains. But that could all change if cyber attacks succeed in suppressing, for long periods, Internet networks necessary to sustain everyday life. Systems that control power grids, financial transactions, logistical systems that involve the delivery of everyday goods from food <coughs> to medicines to consumer goods. Our view of the Internet, the Internet's utility, would surely change if this occurred. It might similarly change if it enabled the widespread theft of trade, speak, trade secrets from U.S. companies, a development that would surely affect their economic value. I want to emphasize that I am not a technologist, and I really cannot judge the odds of these grim possibilities. But based on the cyber attacks and intrusions that have already occurred, 
They seem not to be beyond the realm of science fiction. The Internet seems to have made, have made us vulnerable in new and frightening ways. I could offer other examples in the same spirit. Modern medicine has clearly been a great benefit to millions and millions of people around the world and millions and millions of Americans. Life expectancy has improved in the quality of life through pharmaceuticals, artificial hips and knees, and many other technological advances are obvious and enormous in my view. But at the same time, the uncontrollable nature, at least uncontrollable until now, the uncontrollable nature of healthcare spending has this depressed take-home pay and is crowding out other worthy programs, government programs, for health gains which at the margin seem negligible or non-existence. The lesson that I draw from all this is that not, is not that humanprogress.org should uh, not highlight the beneficial trends that, that are minimized or overlooked by much of the media and outside commentators. My, the lesson I take is that it should also report and acknowledge on the evidence that doesn't represent progress. The main objective, it seems, to, the more objective it is, it seems to me, the more credible its evidence will be. With all the numbers that the site has, you are essentially trying to create a narrative. But if the end of the narrative is known before the story begins, then I suspect that your natural audience may lose interest in the journey. Progress is at best a struggle, with setbacks that are often as frequent as the successes, and when the ultimate outcome is rarely known in advance. As I suggested at the outset, the great danger to be avoided is utopianism, a utopianism that tries to anticipate and create the future before it actually happens. It is the idea that progress is preordained if simply pursued with the right set of policies and attitudes. The lesson from history, it seems to me, is that it's not that simple. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, actually, before we open it to Q&A, uh, and please don't forget, there's a lunch coming uh, uh, in, in approximately 20 to 25 minutes. Uh, Ron, do you, want, do, do, do you have anything to say? Um, uh, sh shall we do a little five minute each? Uh, OK, I could. Fortunately, I took notes, so maybe I can say something. Um, I, th I think the warning of being aware of a selective vision and utopianism is, is, is required. On the other hand, um, I, I would like to, to look at the uh, couple of the things with regard to globalization and the three points, globalization, technological advances, for example, uh, and modern medicine. And uh, globalization may not be an unalloyed alloyed good, but uh, I think that one of the, the hopes is, and I'm, I'm going to bet on this, and I think it's the way it's going to go, is, is that economic in integration will slowly but surely uh, end up with political integration, that essentially economics freedom precedes political freedom, and that uh, by the end of the century, the trends that we find in um, uh, various freedom indices will be basically that most humans will live in relatively free societies. Um, I think that, again, that may be my utopianism speaking, but I think the trends are pretty much in that direction. There will be, obviously, places where there are, are times when certain countries go backwards. Unfortunately, Russia is in the midst of one of those times now. 
but I think the trend ultimately will be toward greater freedom and greater wealth uh, as a result of that. Um, the other thing about globalization is, is that uh, by being more dependent upon one another, I think that we also can avoid uh, that there's a greater, there's a, less of a temptation for countries to go to war with one another. And that again has shown up in the trends that Steven Pinker and others have found where uh, essentially the great powers no longer fight. Uh, with regard to technological advances, um, you're concerned about cyber warfare, and we can't really address that here, but I, highly want, I do want to highly recommend a conference that Cato had, what, three weeks ago, maybe four weeks ago, uh, where they were looking at NSA spying. And one of the takeaway messages from the technologists that they had here at this panel, like Bruce Schneier and so forth, is that the Internet can, in fact, be made end-to-end -end secure, and if, if our governments will let us do that. And that we really do have to make the internet secure for everybody, which means that our governments can't read it, terrorists can't read it, uh, cyber criminals can't read it, and that can be done, I'm told. Uh, there's an interesting book uh, that I reviewed, uh, Why Cyber War Will Not Occur or Why It Will Not Happen, uh, by a guy out of, out of Britain. And he, he basically says that, that trying to design uh, uh, cyber warfare uh, I don't know, viruses, Trojans, whatever you want to call them, is extremely difficult because so much of the Internet is so specific. The kinds of things that control our machinery are not generalizable. The networks are so split up that he doesn't think that you could really pull off a major attack that would, would de destroy a banking system for months at a time or an electric grid for months at a time. Um, just to say, uh, he's a defense analyst, and I, I was persuaded. With regard to modern medicine, uh, I think that many of us here think that the reason that healthcare costs are uncontrollable at this point is largely because we haven't tried the market for 60 years. Um, one of the things, and there's, there's some hope even in that regard, and there's a, a brand new book out by Peter Huber. Sorry to be quoting all these books, but that's what I'm reading lately. Uh, and I'll be reviewing this as well by Peter Huber called The Cure is in the Code. And he believes and makes a very powerful argument that the combinations with biotechnology, molecular medicine, and information technologies are going to, if we can get the FDA out of the way, uh, end up with dramatic uh, uh, reductions in the costs of cures uh, in, in, over the next few decades or so. And again, it's a bit of a utopian idea that we can get the government out of the way, but I, I, I have my hopes. Um, first, I agreed with, with about 90% of, of Ron's presentation, um, and I do think that there tends to be, in my business, the news business, a kind of uh, a pessimistic bias that looks for problems, and uh, 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 there's a, an adage attributed to an anonymous British journalist who, uh, a Brit who's a friend of mine, who's also a journalist, said is David Frost, the late David Frost, the secret of our business. First we simplify, then we exaggerate. So, uh, and, and I think that the, the sort of these longer-term trends tend not to be, uh, tend to be underestimated, which is why I think this website is a good idea. Um, and um, something that, that's, prophesied to end in catastrophe or crisis or at least a, a substantial problem has an advantage over something else that, that is less dramatic or maybe just as dramatic but, but not quite as uh, hair-raising. Um, having said that, 
Um, I just think you have to give a little bit more credence to the course of history. Um, and that, that things um, that people didn't think could happen or would happen, happen all the time. I mean, before 9-11, who would have imagined that two planes would have smashed into the Twin Towers? It, it, it just, it, just people just didn't imagine it. Um, the fact that Europe uh, in the last four or five years has been going through a sovereign debt crisis where one of the countries of Europe is already in a, it defaulted on its debt and, and the possibility that others might do so is no longer un, uh, unrealistic. Again, five or six, uh, uh, 10 or 15 years ago, people just didn't imagine that. People thought that the sovereign debt of major developed countries was riskless, and it, it was a it was a, an assumption that was embodied in the actual regulations that, that, that came out of uh, Basel, Switzerland, that governed uh, major banks. Uh, they uh, w- banks were required to have capital against the various kind of assets that they purchased, and against government sovereign government bonds of, of developed countries. The the capital they were required to have against those uh, assets was zero because they were considered to be riskless. Um, uh, the possibility that the United States might default on his debt, um, I think uh, two or three years ago, certainly five years ago, was considered zero. I mean, I considered it zero. I remember the first time a, a, an editor mentioned it to me, I said, what the hell is he talking about? Uh, but now it is certainly not zero. It may be fairly small. I hope it's, it's close to zero, but it's certainly not zero anymore. Uh, we could we could default in our debt, and you can go through an awful lot of things that, that have happened that weren't supposed to happen. So, uh, I I certainly hope that globalization leads to the kind of economic interconnectedness that makes a major war between uh, major powers impossible. Uh, that's certainly, I wouldn't call it a utopian vision, but, but it seems to me an optimistic vision, but it's not inconceivable. But I want to remind you that that vision existed almost a, a little bit more than a century ago. At the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, it was felt that the uh, economic integration uh, that had occurred in Europe would over uh, basically overpower the... Uh, the rival, the political and military rivals, political and military rivalries that they had. In fact, there was a book written by a guy named Norman Angel or Angel called The Great Illusion in which he argued, we can't, I think it was published in 1910 or 1911, we can't have a major war in Europe because it's against everyone's economic self-interest and the interdependencies of these uh, societies, economic interdependencies of these societies is so great to, to preclude war, to pr- preclude the ability to wage war. Um, well, that didn't come true. Um, uh, you can go down some of the other, uh, I, I hope we can make the internet secure. And I, I confess again and repeat my previous confession that as a non-technologist, I really don't have the ability to judge our vulnerability. 
but I, I actually did the book that he cites. Uh, what was the name of it again? Why we won't have a uh, yeah. It's why why cyber war is a very clunky title. Why cyber war will not occur. Right. I I, I wrote a, a column about uh, the possibility of cyber war, and I actually quoted that book. And I, although I didn't read every page, every word, not every page, I did spend some time going through it. And my reaction was that the title didn't reflect what was in the book. That if you actually read what was in the book, he said, well, some of these things might occur. He just didn't think they'd be as catastrophic as perhaps I thought they might be, but he didn't rule them out. Um, and, and I hope that, in fact, we there, there's, a, there's a race going on now between the people who are attacking and the people who are defending. And I hope the people who are defending win, although we are also developing the sort of the attack technologies uh, to, 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 to uh, support our own national goals. Um, and, and in terms of health care, uh, the problem is essentially political and social. And, 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 and I, I should mention, I'm not so enamored with a, a world where the population is going down because a world with a population going down means a very, very old populations in most countries. Um, and the problem that advanced societies are now facing is that they are coming face to face with the aging of their populations which would be, which would be uh, easy, I think, to adapt to if these populations weren't supported by such large welfare states. But the welfare states were supported, were economically supportable when those populations were smaller and economic growth was a little bit faster. It seems to me that it's quite conceivable that we have now reached a tipping point where these welfare states are no longer supportable by the economic base. And so the attempts to maintain the, 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 the economic, to, to maintain the size and generosity of the welfare states result in tax increases, which actually make the economic base less productive and therefore increase rather than decrease the dilemma. So I think that that is a problem that all advanced societies are now facing. And whether or not we get out, how easily we, we navigate our way through that, uh, it seems to me is problematic. It was a little bit longer than I expected to be, and I apologize for that. Not at all. In, in Engel's defense, though, I would simply say that uh, he kept on emphasizing later in, in his life that he wasn't deterministic uh, that war wouldn't occur in, in, in Europe, which, of course, it did a year after the publication of his book, but that it would be stupid for governments to go into war. And, of course, there is, no, uh, there is no guarantee that the good times will prevail. I certainly hope that 10 or 20 years from now um, we won't be looking back at data such as these thinking, my goodness, how good did we have it before somebody, um, before somebody crazy uh, decided to undo um, all the accomplishments that we have, we have achieved over the past 200 years. Um, so your point about predeterminism is very well taken. Um, I want to open it now to Q&A. We have about 10 uh, to 15 minutes. Uh, please wait to be called upon. Uh, the mic will come to you. And then if you could please tell us your name and who your paymaster is. So we'll start with the gentleman over there in glasses. Uh, hello, uh, my name is Akil Aline, and I'm an intern here at the Cato Institute. I have a question for Mr. So you're not getting paid by anyone? <laughs> not that much. But anyway, um, I have a question for Mr. Samuelson. Uh, very quickly on the point you mentioned about um, 
nuclear weapons, which I thought was an interesting example uh, that you used to illustrate your point. Um, you've probably heard the case made. I think it was Kenneth Waltz back in 1981 who made the case that the development of nuclear weapons was actually a good thing for the purpose of world peace because it gave the great powers a huge disincentive to go to all-out conventional war. Um, so I was wondering whether if you take that in case into account, you would still say, you know, we would be better off if nuclear weapons had never been invented. You know, that's an interesting point, and I think, I, I think that's probably correct. But on the other side is, I mean, I'm not a, 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 either a defense reporter or a student of military history. Uh, so, but my impression is that the history of warfare is the history of miscalculation. Uh, and that in, in many, if not all wars, one side thinks they're going to prevail very quickly, or maybe both sides think they're going to prevail very quickly, and it turns out that neither does. Um, I think it is one of the great miracles of the post-World War II era that we have not had a nuclear exchange. And it may be that um, that the... Um, uh, that the strategy evolved in the 1950s of massive retaliation had the effect of, of deterring uh, even small conflicts between the great powers because they were t terrified that it would escalate into a nuclear exchange. Um, on the other hand, it seems to me, and that that, that was supplemented by the uh, non-proliferation treaty, which has kept the number of countries with uh, nuclear arms limited. If we break out of that system, and it seems to me we may be on the verge of breaking out, uh, the North Koreans already have uh, uh, weapons and Iran may acquire them, uh, it seems to me that the potential for miscalculation will go up dramatically. Um, and uh, again, given the choice between having that technology or not having it, um, uh, and even conceding your point that maybe this deterred conventional warfare in the last 60 years between major powers, I'd still prefer not to have the technology. I'm not going to address the thermonuclear war thing, but I would like to, to mention that with regard to nuclear power technology, vastly fewer people have died in the entire history of nuclear power than die in coal mining in one year for supplying fossil fuel uh, around the world, period. Uh, then I also want to go to, to to be very clear, I'm against uh, all kinds of subsidies. I'm against social socialism. I'm against nuclear socialism. But if I were to put on my central planning energy hat, the nuclear energy I would have gone for, and we were going to go for that, and we went the other way, thanks to our military industrial complex, would have been thorium reactors, which can't produce fissile um, nuclear ties that could be turned into weapons and that we would be in a very different proliferative world if we had gone in that direction. Just, just saying, but that was a government choice. If you like the way the government subsidizes uh, energy, uh, you'll just love the nuclear power energy. In the back. Um, I'm Martin Worcester. I haven't had a job since 1988. Um, I was wondering if Mr. Bailey could discuss the findings about how the global temperature has been flat for five years, 10 years, and 15. what this finding means for the IPCC and global warming models in general. 
Um, what the IPCC says is, uh, in the, the latest report, is that uh, if you run their models, some of them uh, occasionally will produce periods of, uh, of hiatus lasting about 15 years or so. And this may be something like that as part of the fluctuations you would get. And that if you wait five more years, the temperatures should start rising again. I will point out if they don't start rising in 20 years, they're going to be a really deep, I think, a really deep rethink about the accuracy of the models. Um, but I think that we'll have to wait another five years before um, the, either the, uh, the observations prove the models are right or they prove them are wrong to the satisfaction of the larger community of people who are debating this issue. May I ask a question, uh, actually repeat a question that was asked on, on the previous panel about uh, the effects of modernity on uh, things like species, survival, and uh, uh, really environmental degradation? Because I, I, I think, co correct me if I'm wrong, but when people today object to the degrees of industrialization, globalization, free market capitalism to the extent that, is, that it is free. Really what they're talking about, the, the biggest counter-argument or concern is the environment. So let's put aside for a second global warming and let's just focus on things like uh, fish, um, species survival, um, spoliation of natural resources, that sort of thing. W would either one of you like to comment on that? I am happy to. I, I, I cede to Ron because I know very little about this subject. Well, uh, as, as it turns out, the biodiversity, again, the biodiversity declines that are, uh, you find in the literature are largely the result of, of model calculations. You can't actually find the dead species out there. And so that's a problem. Um, one of the, the interesting features and one of the depressing things to think about if you're looking for the environment and trying to preserve biodiversity is that 80% of the world's forests are owned by governments, uh, which doesn't make, and I suggest to you that in very poor countries, governments are not very good stewards of, of forests, and this is a problem. Uh, with regard, just as an aside, with regard to non-renewable non resources, something like 85% of the world's oil is also owned by governments. And I wrote an article where it said we could have political peak oil. That is, we could produce, that governments could be so bad at producing it that we could, in fact, have a shortage as a result of that. Mexico is, and Venezuela are perfect examples of what that is like right now. Uh, with regard to fisheries, I have a... A decades-long fascination with fisheries, which I don't understand because I don't like fish, but um, uh, it was pointed out it, ages ago in the 1940s that if, what you needed to do is give property rights to fishers if you wanted them to preserve fisheries. And this was done by economists, and it was completely ignored by fisheries scientists up until about five or six years ago when a biologist said, you know, I looked around the world, and where the, the fishers own the, the fisheries, they're doing fine. It was published in Science, and all of a sudden, wow, property rights in fisheries, what a great idea. And that, that is slowly but surely rolling across the world. The, the tragedy is that human beings, being the doggone stubborn critters that they are, and fishers being especially stubborn, is they won't do this until the fishery is practically dead. And then they go, oh, well, we've tried everything else, now let's do property rights. Okay. Um, and that, that's... Uh, uh, that, that's terrible. One other thing on biodiversity, I, 
is, and, that, and this is something I don't know that most people realize, is that across planet Earth, wherever human beings have gone uh, in the last 200 years or so, we have dramatically increased local biodiversity. Um, uh, I, I, and this really annoys some people, but in New Zealand, you've doubled the number of plant species who live there and, and basically doubled the number of bird species that live there after the, the die-off that the Polynesians created. Um, you, in the United States, uh, uh, there are a thousand uh, uh, species of plants that now live in California that didn't live there before, and only three species of plants, <laughs> native plants in California, have gone extinct over that period of time. To an extent, if what you're thinking is you want biodiversity because it also improves things like um, uh, resource cycling or, or mineral cycling or whatever else, we've actually improved the plant in that direction. On the other hand, the trend does seem to be that we are causing extinctions at a faster rate than is normal for background. And I think that that's a bad idea, but it's also, again, a function that uh, I would suggest to you of a failure of property rights in many areas. But I would say that I'm a Cato scholar to some extent. I, I uh, Recently, a book I, I read, which was very interesting and right to the point that you are making, is Paul Thoreau's uh, Last Train to Zona Verde, where he talks about visiting uh, some very poor African countries and uh, uh, realizing, as he was walking around, that there were no animals. Uh, there were no uh, antelopes, there were no elephants, there were not even birds in the air, as he found in, uh, in, for example, Angola. It turns out that very poor people are very bad stewards of the environment around them because whatever moves gets eaten. Recently, one of my personal experiences was seeing uh, what was happening to um, natural parks in Zimbabwe after the collapse of the Zimbabwean economy, where government thugs and uh, soldiers went into the national parks and shot entire families of elephants for their tusks, which were then uh, sold off for profit elsewhere. So I, I do think actually that uh, the relationship between growing incomes and uh, protection of the environment is a very solid one. Um, I hope it continues. Um, one last question. Yes, sir. If you, if you could just give us two seconds. Back in the 1970s when we started the first Earth Day, the big concern back then was global cooling. Can we uh, accept uh, the global warming as a victory? <laughs> um, that, that's a very vexed history, but anyway... Uh, the global cooling, uh, if you go and look at the data that the IPCC and everybody else has put together, is that there had been a, uh, the Little Ice Age came to an end at the end of the 19th century. There was warming up through the 30s, and then there was cooling from the 40s to the 70s. Uh, that, and again, there was a very young science in what they, you know, they were attributing the cooling to. And there were uh, Time Magazine had front page articles about this, or Newsweek basically claiming that we're putting so much uh, particulate pollutant into the atmosphere that we're sh shutting out the sunlight. That's why the planet's going dark and we're all going to starve to death soon. And then uh, something happened in the 70s. And that's kind of weird because something did seem to happen in the 70s. There was a step change. All of a sudden, uh, between somewhere between 1975 and 1979, 
that uh, there seemed to have been a, a jump, maybe as much as a, a degree and a half, I mean, of a half a degree uh, Celsius all at once in the four-year period. And then we got some warming up through the 1990s, which has now subsequently been flat. I, I understand with regard to the uh, victory, one of the interesting things was a, a new book by uh, Bjorn Lomborg uh, looking at some work by Richard Toll, who's an economist who looks at integrated assessment models, which look at climate and, and economics. And if you think a climate model is a little dodgy, put that on with an economic model. Yeah. But anyway, that being said, uh, those models pretty much all find warming to be a net benefit for humanity up until at least the middle of the century and probably the late part of the century, that basically far, few, far more people die of cold than they do of heat, that the, the fertilization effect of carbon dioxide is increasing, uh, greening the planet, increasing pro crop productivity and so forth. At that point, the models find a tipping point where the, 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 um, uh, the, the, the drawbacks, if you will, the costs outweigh the benefits of warming at that point. Uh, again, I think this notion that we're going to plan the world's economy for 100 years is, is kind of nuts. It would, it would be like asking uh, Madame Curie, Einstein, Edison to be sitting in 1900 all around. So how much energy will the world be using in 2300, I mean, tw in t uh, 2013? And asking them to project it and, and that all the things that we use, um, the lights, the air conditioners, the airplanes, the cars, that had not been invented. I think that we are going to, I, I'm, I'm a utopian optimist by some people's um, Reckoning, I think that we're going to invent our way out of this problem. I think it is a problem, and we are going to invent our way out of it if the governments don't screw it up. Oh, and a final question. You should worry the following question. Is, government, what, is, is global warming worse than what government is likely to try to do about it? Do you have any, any last well, I, 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 I'm something of an agnostic on global warming. Um, I, being a, not a scientist or a science writer, I'm willing to accept the consensus or the apparent consensus of, of the scientists about its causes. Um, my view, though, is that it, given today's technology, which could change, there's really very little we can do about this um, because the only way to do anything substantial about it is to basically shut down the world economy. So the cure would be worse than the disease. Uh, and my own view is that we should probably ought to adopt a carbon tax because, uh, or some sort of an energy tax because it can be justified on other grounds and that we ought to do things that might help us cope with global warming if they can be justified on other grounds with the one important exception of, um, of research and development which would have to be more specific aimed uh, at the basic research that, that perhaps is needed. It, it, it seems to me it's justified that the government ought to work on that. The other thing I would say about global warming, though, is it is, it is by at least it's the people who worry about it regarded as the greatest threat to civilization in the next century. And I don't view it that way. I think a thermonuclear accident or war that would break out, uh, that that is really the greatest threat that humanity faces in the next, uh, in, in my lifetime. Thank you, Robert. Thank you, Ron. Thank you, all of you. And please join us for free lunch upstairs.